Welcome to SEAC Stories. My name is Tashara Dibley and I'm one of the deputy directors at the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. Welcome to the final part of our ASEAN Forum 2020 event, which has been running over the last week. This is a panel discussion where we bring all our speakers together to discuss some of the questions that you've raised that have come out of their videos and podcasts. I'm going to just jump straight in um, and ask Greg about the situation in Vietnam. So things actually have changed in the last couple of weeks since we recorded the video at which point a few of us were talking about Vietnam as being one of the key examples of a country that has managed the virus really well, but things have changed a little bit in that time. Could you give us a little update on what's happening and why? As you said, at the start of the pandemic, Vietnam did very well and locked down its borders uh, with China uh, and conducted very aggressive contact investigation and isolation. And so for some months, there was no community spread. Since uh, mid-July, there have been some new cases detected in central Vietnam. The government has attributed that to cross-border spread from China, um, although there is um, a nationalism uh, that may be playing into that. But what's happened is the numbers of cases have increased from the mid-300s up to around 900 cases now as we record in, uh, in mid-August. Now, that new outbreak, I think, illustrates some really important points uh, around the pandemic more broadly a small number of cases can rapidly emerge in vulnerable populations uh, or where testing is not happening. And so I think in Vietnam, we've seen a small number of cases go undetected for a period of time. And then finally, when they have been detected, uh, there's been quite a lot of uh, people who've been infected. Secondly, uh, even in countries which are doing very well, there are always going to be places which are potentially uh, able to support transmission. And so although the Vietnamese response has been quick, it now, I think, is um, going to be important to see what happens over the coming weeks as to whether it can be contained effectively. And finally, I think it's also revealed that COVID is different to seasonal influenza. In some ways, it's more like a rising tide than it is a wave. And when those gaps emerge, then it can spread very rapidly. So I think there are lessons from Vietnam that should be heeded by other countries which have controlled COVID in the region to show that even when you have good control, that's not necessarily always the way it's going to be. Greg, we also had a question around how ASEAN can better protect people who um, have other diseases and what should countries around ASEAN be doing to ensure adequate healthcare for people suffering from other diseases? So one of the big challenges in the current environment is the competition between COVID-19 and existing uh, medical problems in many countries. And that includes, as I said in my talk, both problems of infectious diseases, such as tuberculosis, malaria, and HIV, as well as chronic diseases, such as diabetes and heart disease. It's a real challenge for the health system to juggle both of these priorities. And I think as the region adapts to this increased demand on health services, there's a few principles I think that, that are important. The first is to make sure that vulnerable populations are engaged and, and are considered uh, when the health systems are responding because we've seen that a lot of gains can be lost rapidly if those vulnerable populations are neglected. Secondly, I think there's going to be a need for an augmentation of investment in chronic disease and in other transmissible diseases to try and avert long-term uh, consequences, because after the pandemic is completed, um, and if there is uh, you know, finally a, a drop in numbers, there's going to be a, a huge residual burden of disease which needs to be addressed and there's going to be a need for investment uh, in order to go and make sure that the productive workforce can, uh, can resume activities and, and can help the countries to recover economically. And then finally, I think uh, there's also going to be the need for 
uh, a proactive um, approach, um, particularly in settings where the market has been left to try and solve many of the problems. And I think government will need to step into the space vacated by, by private uh, businesses, which, which perhaps uh, have not been able to survive. And uh, this is a real challenge for countries which have uh, been very heavily dependent upon the private sector. Um, and so it may uh, potentially lead to a, uh, a strengthening uh, in, in some countries of the way that the government takes responsibility for healthcare, recognising the connection between individual health and the community's health uh, that, that we've really seen play out through this pandemic. Aim, in your video, you touched on the idea that government responses are not the only responses that we need to be looking at, but the communities and how communities respond is equally as important. Could you talk us through a little bit more, maybe giving us an example of a community where there has been a really effective response? I think one of the greatest example of looking at grassroots response is the case of Thailand, where basically the village health volunteers were out already on foot in villages armed with information uh, to tell people what to do, measuring the temperature, giving out hand sanitizers and masks, and educating people about what this virus is and what are some of the key symptoms. So these are mostly women, older women, who have been doing this volunteer work for many years. Um, these are not at all medical practitioners. They had very little medical training. They're good people who had been training on some basic health matters, and they're actually our front line in fighting misinformation as well. And they were out there long before government stepped in. So I think it's important to look at grassroots response, especially from societal level, and how much of that connects or disconnects to the official government response to handling COVID-19. And Jeff, what about in Indonesia? Uh, you said you've done most of your work in Taraja. I'm not sure if you have any examples there of how communities are responding. When we think about responses to COVID, I guess there's a number of different levels of that response. Uh, there's a public health response of communication, uh, communicating you know, what to do, how to wear masks, et cetera. Then there's the response, which I guess is the healthcare system response where you know, the healthcare needs to deal with sick people effectively. And then the third one is, is being able to respond to the economic fallout. So I think it might be helpful to, to, to think of it in terms of those three levels of response. And it's quite likely that the healthcare response is probably going to remain primarily a government intervention uh, within Southeast Asia. Um, but certainly in terms of the, the one communicating about the, the public health requirements, wearing masks, for example, um, we've seen within Indonesia, religious organisations playing a key role there in encouraging their followers to wear masks. Muhammadiyah in Indonesia made a rather, a rather large announcement last week that all their teachers in their schools will be wearing masks. So that sort of public health messaging is often very important, um, particularly within non-government organisations like religious institutions. Um, and then, of course, there's a, there's a response to the economic fallout. And so what we're seeing in, in, in many parts of rural Indonesia is that people are, are relying on you know, have, having access to, to social institutions, to access to land in many cases, to re-engage with farming activities for both self-sufficient in terms of self-sufficiency in food, but also in terms of markets. And so these are things that it's not so much the government, direct government policy uh, in terms of payments, but certainly I guess government policy could be directed towards facilitating those sorts of more positive responses by, by community organisations. So, I mean, I guess bouncing off this idea of 
you know, the way communities might engage in that economic response. Sandra, I'm interested in your views on how, to what extent the virus has had an impact on supply chains around the region and what you think the longer term consequences of it might be. What we can see for sure is that Southeast Asian countries have very successfully embedded themselves in global supply chains. And, and that's a good thing. Uh, integration into the global uh, economy is, is always good. However, as I mentioned in the video, we need to uh, view uh, this embeddedness in the global economy along with two important characteristics. The first characteristic of the way that ASEAN has, has uh, engaged uh, with the world is that it's a very outward looking engagement. This means that a significant proportion of ASEAN trade is outside ASEAN rather than inside ASEAN. So it's very outward looking. And the second important characteristic of the relationship of ASEAN uh, with the world is that increasingly over the past few years, it's become import dependent. So uh, let's consider those three characteristics deep embeddedness in uh, global value chains, very outward looking, but import dependent. So the implication there is that with a collapse, I, I'm, I'm gonna loosely use the term collapse of uh, Chinese, uh, Indian, South Korean, Japanese markets, the global supply chain within which ASEAN countries are deeply embedded has essentially disintegrated if we couple that with uh, the import orientation of the ASEAN region, that means that the pandemic has really exposed significant vulnerabilities in the region. There is some talk now of issues potentially with food security, given the import dependence of ASEAN. So it's a very vulnerable time uh, for the region, for sure. Jeff, did you want to add anything to that? Sort of looking maybe more how it's playing out at the national level? What the pandemic has shown is this disruption to global supply chains that, that it was certainly very significant at first, but I think it's tapered off a little bit now. It may well become more, more significant again in the future. But what, what it's certainly done, it's sort of highlighted to many countries the risks associated with engagement in global value chains and, and international trade networks. So while on the one hand, yes, they often promote economic growth, very positive thing, it also highlights many countries, you know, when, when Vietnam starts restricting their exports of rice, when, when India starts uh, restricting their ex exports of rice to ensure local supplies, countries like Indonesia and the Philippines, which are highly dependent on rice imports, um, all of a sudden get very concerned over their food security in the long term. And so that is always likely to trigger a nationalist response to ensure self-sufficiency in some of these key commodities at the national level. That might be a good thing in terms of perhaps being less vulnerable to these sorts of uh, global supply chain shocks. But in the short term, at least, it also comes at a cost. So it's much more expensive for the Philippines and Indonesia in particular to produce all their own rice compared to importing it um, from much more efficient producers in Thailand and, and Vietnam. So there we, we, what we seem to be seeing, and even in, in places like Australia, we're seeing a, a, a similar response by the government saying we need to be manufacturing all of our own medical equipment as well. And so these sorts of you know, responses, yes, if they end up getting played out politically in many countries, could lead to sort of large contraction of, of trade. And that may not be in the long-term best interests of the region. And just to add to that point, Jeff, it's an excellent point about looking inward and developing internal capacity. I guess the challenge there is that developing internal capacity for manufacturing or rice production, for example, takes a lot of time. 
and that's a luxury I think that most Southeast Asian countries don't have. Uh, so I think the way forward is for ASEAN countries to help each other through the pandemic and help them help each other out uh, and lift themselves economically from this crisis. I think there's some aspect of rising nationalism, but also a huge aspect of, hey, we really need to help each other here. And, and, and one key area of that is actually tourism. Many of the Southeast Asian countries are heavily dependent on tourists, uh, which has now effectively gone to near zero. And efforts to uh, increase the number of domestic tourists within the country haven't really panned out very well. So um, there has been a lot of discussion about creating some kind of travel bubble going on, especially in mainland Southeast Asia, where the number of cases remain reasonable uh, so that they can, you know, help struggling airlines, but also millions of people who work directly and indirectly with tourism industry. And so I think that kind of initiative is exactly what Sandra is talking about. So we did actually have a question around more specifically about nationalism, which you've touched on. Is there any other things you'd like to add about how nationalism specifically could help or hinder the process of well managing and potentially recovering from the economic and health fallout of the virus? I think the, the potential risk associated with rising nationalism could also be related to false reporting and false communication. So if there's sort of a, a national pride at stake, uh, and I think we might've seen that early on in the case of Indonesia, where they were sort of very quick to say, the virus wasn't in Indonesia and that sort of there was a there was a sense of, of pride associated with that and that inability to report then led to a delayed response initially. If that sort of a response gets played out um, across countries obviously it's not going to be in anyone's best interest. I think one of the things that's emerged around this virus is problems of conspiracy theories and false information. Does anyone want to talk to how these issues have played out in Southeast Asia or have they and, and what's being done to manage them? I think it's super interesting to actually look at the global discourses around COVID-19 and realize that some of the key conspiracy theories that have pervaded a lot of Western countries haven't really affected Southeast Asia in the same way. For example, stop 5G or anti-vaccination discourses, anti-mass wearing discourses, really here in Australia, um, North America, Europe, but really haven't been affected in the region. What's been more prevalent is actually the number of increasing cyber attacks, especially on social media. So I think some of the key things that Southeast Asian governments and civil society have tried to raise awareness on is more on the issue of cybersecurity. Secondly, on the, the issue of, you know, what information to trust. And we're talking about a region here where we're innovating in terms of anti-fake news legislation and institutions uh, to the dismay of a number of human rights um, advocates, right? Um, they're worried that this is a ploy for government to use to try to exert greater control over information flow uh, of citizens at a time they're most vulnerable and in lockdown. So I think going forward, uh, we're going to see this continuation of contestation over who gets to control information and how much of that power citizens are willing to give up in exchange for greater control over the virus. Very interesting. Yes, sometimes, yeah, these things don't quite pan out how, how we imagine that they will. Uh, we've also had a question here about the role of China um, in shaping a response to the pandemic. We've had two questions, one on the role of China and the other on the role of Australia. Um, does anyone want to comment on one or other or both of these? China has been rolling out eight. 
Actually, it's been trying to buy support through aid, particularly in Cambodia, Laos, and Myanmar. And that's really fascinating because it doesn't often get reported widely. You know, you think, well, I wonder if COVID-19 would generate anti-Chinese sentiment in the way that it has in other parts of the world, especially in, in Western countries, right, where there's a, an astonishing rise in anti-Chinese sentiment. But in Southeast Asia, this seems to play out quite differently. And even despite the devastating impact it had on the whole region, many countries haven't changed the position about how they thought of China and willingly accept aid. So my take on this is that the anti-China sentiment that many or some uh, developed uh, countries have shown towards China, um, the U.S., Australia, etc., isn't really hurting China. It's turned inward, uh, it's grown its domestic economy, and it's actually succeeded uh, in not moving into recession uh, over the past few months. Uh, and that's because internally the, the, the Chinese market is large. The economy has a lot of resources. So in the next, in the short to medium term, China's economy will continue to grow. It will be driven by its large internal market. Uh, and building on what uh, AIM mentioned earlier, China is going to strengthen its relationships within Asia and the role of the Belt and Road Initiative will receive renewed second wind, uh, if you'd like, and it will strengthen its position in Asia. If I could add um, to, to the conversation so far, I think uh, it's important to remember that we're still potentially in the early stages of this pandemic and that up to now, uh, much of the response has been to try and provide fairly generic support in the form of personal protective equipment or you know, equipment for hospitals. There are now, though, um, new treatment options, including drugs and, we hope soon, uh, vaccine candidates. And potentially, there's going to be a limitation in the capacity of the global pharmaceutical industry to supply adequate treatment for the world's population simultaneously. And I think that tension will potentially play out internationally when countries uh, really look at trying to support their own populations, but also have to compete uh, with others in the region. And countries which have got, for example, vaccine manufacturing capacity like Australia uh, and Vietnam may be well positioned to support other countries, but also will be looking to their own interests. And so I think that uh, the way that the region handles the problem of scarcity of treatment for COVID-19 is going to be interesting to watch. It's interesting in that with China now, of course, legal, one of the leading contenders for developing a vaccine, um, and I know they've sort of made announcements in the last few weeks of rolling out a fairly large-scale human trial of a vaccine um, in Indonesia in partnership with one of the big state-owned companies there and an Indonesia university. So that in itself appears to actually be generating a lot of goodwill within Indonesia and, and how, that, how that plays out longer term, whether it's successful or not, of course, is, is still uncertain, but the potential there for China to also to step in and provide further support through potentially a vaccine in the future would, could have very, very serious uh, geopolitical implications at a time where the US appears to be retreating from engagement within the region and retreating from its sort of global leadership role. Australia has been somewhat ambivalent, I would say, in sort of in, in providing or ramping up support to the region. I think our, our response for the most part has been much more 
inwardly oriented to making sure that sort of things domestically within Australia are under control rather than having a really forthright attempt to sort of project and support some of our, our partners in places like, like Indonesia, Philippines and elsewhere, where traditionally Australia has been a really key donor in terms of development support. So that's something that I think Australia, Australian government should perhaps be thinking a bit more seriously about, about how, how we can be making sure we're projecting ourselves as being a dependable partner in times of trouble. Well, look, thanks, everyone. I think that's a good spot to wrap it up. Thank you to our audience for joining us over the last week. You can catch all our videos and re-listen to everything um, on our website. And if you do have any comments on this online format or suggestions on how we might do these things differently in the future, please drop us a line. We'd be most interested in hearing from you. But first of all, just some thank yous. Thank you to all our speakers. Thank you to the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre for your support for the event. And of course, big thank you to Ariane for all your work behind the scenes making this happen. Catch you all later. You've been listening to SEAC Stories. This episode is part of a special series of recordings we're doing for the 2020 ASEAN Forum, which focuses on the responses to the COVID-19 pandemic across the region. Each of our speakers has recorded a video in addition to this podcast, which you can catch on our Facebook page, YouTube channel, or the SEAC website. If you have questions for the speaker, please post them wherever you watch the video or post it on Twitter using the hashtag ASEAN Forum 20.